Scripture has a lot to say about to the topic of justice. Passages like Psalm 82.3, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Isaiah 1.17, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. And I'm sure everyone has heard at some point Micah 6.8, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And then there are the words of the Lord Jesus himself when he said, Woe to you, Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and yet you neglect justice and love and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, Luke 11:42. The Bible tells us that God is very concerned about justice. He doesn't just wink at it when when injustices are committed. And so, what are we to think then when when a when a cacophony of voices, when when a flood of voices are telling us that certain things must be done in the name of justice, and all sorts of adjectives are added on to justice, particularly Social justice. How are we to think biblically about this? Because it's very easy to get swept up in it. Well, to that end, I've invited somebody who is much more uh, studied up on on this than I am. And he is going to help us think biblically about the topic of social justice. Anthony, come up. I think... uh, some of, most of you know Anthony. If not, uh, he is a friend of the church. He's been here a number of times. He is a, uh, he is a dentist, so if anyone needs any ba- uh, uh, back alley dental work, we have an alley right here. He'll be here until tomorrow morning. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Aaron. Good morning. So let's uh, bow our heads in prayer for just a moment here. Lord, I just thank you for gathering us together on your day, Lord. Uh, What a beautiful day again to be able to wake up and breathe your air. Lord, this is a a hard topic. It is is an infiltrated, not only society today, it's infiltrated so many of churches and so many good churches on top of that. And so, Lord, I just ask that you speak through me, that it's your words and not mine, and that you prepare the minds of everyone in here and the hearts of everyone in here to be able to receive this word, to know how to biblically think about the social justice movement that is permeating really every aspect of society and again um, really destroying and ripping apart good churches in your holy impression name we pray amen so this is one of the hardest talks that i i have to give and i've been doing this for about two and a half years now we're uh, my ministry was at the forefront of a lot of this and uh, being able to dissect what's going on in this social justice movement and so this is entitled the evils of the social justice movement and you're going to see why in a moment So there's a few major points today. First of all, this is not an expository sermon. Typically, I come in on a Saturday, do a fun creation conference or something like that, and then on Sunday, give an expository sermon. There is no passage in the Bible that deals directly with social justice, and so we have to go through a number of texts to be able to understand this properly. So a couple of major points is, is first of all, racism is not a biblical term. So I'm going to get this out there right from the forefront. When we as Christians use the term racism... We are not using a biblical term. When we use the term racism, we are using a term from out there, from the secular world. 
and importing it into the church. Why do I say that? Because you might ask the question, does racism exist? Well, let's think about this biblically. How many races are there according to the Bible? One. One blood, one race, all descended from Adam. So how can we have racism if there's not multiple races? That's an important thing to think about here. And so rather than use the term racism, let's, let's cut to the chase right off the bat. It's sin. When somebody sins against another person in any way, it's a sin. So if you sin against them because of their, of their, their height or shortness, if you, of their body shape or their body shade, or anything else you want to come up with, it's a sin. Let's not, let's not give unbiblical terms to this stuff. So one blood, one race. And number two, no one is white or black. We are all shades of brown. Some of us who are Italian are kind of in between with our olive skin. But we're all shades of brown. So does this sound familiar? <clears throat> What's the magic word to get what you want? How about I'm offended? Really, that's really what it is. But here's the thing. is it's, it's actually worse than that today. It used to be I'm offended, and now it's turned into you're a racist or you're a phobic, right? Transphobic, homophobic, whatever phobic you want to put into play. But this is what's happening today is that culture is defining terms and pointing at us. And they're redefining terms as well. So this social justice movement that is using these terms and is, is really permeating churches today, it's destroying churches, it's destroying families, it's, it's really ripping apart nations as we're seeing in our own country. So how do we define this social justice movement? Well, how do we define the term justice? And I think we would know biblically justice is defined as receive what you deserve. But the social justice movement doesn't end there, right? They take this word social and slap it in front of justice. And so they define social as relating to society or its organization. So when they put these two words together, we see in the dictionary it says a state or doctrine of egalitarianism, so this idea of, of total equality. And we're going to define those terms a little bit more. But from a sociological perspective, from sociology, they say it's the correcting of unjust treatment and or oppression of certain groups, like races, homosexuals, transgenders, and so on. Hold on a second. Was there a shift that occurred here in this term justice when we add the term social in front of it? It seems like there is. And so this social justice movement, what I want to make sure we understand is it is not of a biblical foundation. The social justice movement starts with two beliefs in their worldview. Number one, it starts with man's philosophy. This does not start from the Bible. It's very similar. I speak around the country against evolutionism and for biblical creation. When I talk to professing Christians who think this earth is millions to billions of years old, I ask them this question, where in the Bible do you get millions to billions of years? Because this concept is a foreign concept to the Bible. You must have taken it from secular science and imported it into the Bible and then try to reinterpret Bible verses in order to incorporate the deep time. This is exactly what's going on in the social justice movement. It is a man's philosophy, an unbiblical one, that is being imported into the Bible and then Bible verses being taken out of context and changed in order to fit what their man's philosophy is. So they have a man's philosophy, and then when you challenge them on this man's philosophy, what do they do? 
they rely upon their personal experience. Which is, is that concrete? Is that objective? Or is that subjective? Is that relative? This is a foundational problem with the social justice movement. So biblically now, how do we define social justice? Well, let's, let's cut to the chase. We define it by putting an X to the word social. Because God's justice is God's justice. There is no adjectives, there is no disclaimers, there is no qualifiers, no anything that you put in front of the word justice or after the word justice. It is how do we define justice. And this is a worldview issue. It's a foundational issue. And so when we understand a biblical worldview, what is it? Well, it also starts with two beliefs. It is God exists and his word is true. Nothing to do with us. It is, what does God say? Who is, the one who defines truth, what does he say about it? And so we have to recognize that these two worldviews are diametrically opposed to one another. God exists, his word is true, biblical worldview is not the same thing, and it, in fact is directly opposite of man's philosophy and personal experience. And so how should us Christians respond to the social justice movement? So, as Christians, anything that comes our way, and we have to think biblically about it, what's the first thing we do when we think about something? What do we compare it with? Scripture. Scripture alone. Right? This is how we have to look at the entire world. Everything thrown our way, we have to look at it through a biblical worldview, a biblical lens. And if we don't do that, we're not being biblical. And so, let's start here, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. I'm sure you guys have done this verse many times in Bible studies as well as, uh, as sermons. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's break this down for just a moment. All scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture, it's the word of God. We want to know how God thinks? Read scripture. Plain as day. Okay. What is this scripture good for? Well, it's good for a lot of things, right? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So we see that God's word is profitable in our everyday lives. Oh, but that's not it. Because it says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for some good works? No. For every good work. Which means that the Bible is sufficient that means that we can take the social justice movement and be confident that we can look at it from a biblical perspective, a biblical lens, and know that the Bible is sufficient in order to be able to understand this social justice movement. We don't need man's experiences. We don't need man's philosophy. We need what does the Bible say in regards to this movement, or really any other movement or challenge that comes our way. And so we start here then with the gospel, because this is what it attacks, right? Every attack against Christianity ultimately attacks the very gospel itself. And the social justice movement is no different. So what is the gospel? For those of you who weren't here yesterday, it is this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel. This is by what we live. 
right? The fact that we are sinners, we have broken God's law, we deserve hell for eternity because of that. And yet in God's grace and mercy, he sent his son Jesus to take the penalty that we deserve. The father, his eternal wrath coming down on his son on that cross. The same wrath that we deserve in hell for eternity. So either your payment was paid for already because Christ took that punishment for you, and God's justice was fully taken care of on the cross for all of your sins, or you're going to be in hell for eternity paying it for yourself. The ultimate definition of God's justice is justice against sin. And that justice was paid for in full through the cross. Okay, so let's define some social justice terms now as we walk through this movement. There's a term called equality. And so if you can see the board up here, this would be these guys that are looking into a ball game. And, and uh, they all have the same starting point, right? They all have the same size box that they're standing on. And so this would be equality. But equality isn't, doesn't encapsulate the social justice movement completely because then we have another term called equity, which is it's not just starting equal, but it's also finishing equal, so to speak. So it's different sized boxes so that they can actually all see, have the same view of this game. Then we have socialism, which is just cutting everybody off at the, at the legs, right, and don't let them have anything, which is what our country is going towards. And then we have something called justice. What is justice? Because the social justice warriors want you to believe that, that a, a, a compilation of these three things is justice. In reality, this is what justice is. You didn't pay for the tickets to begin with. None of you should see the game. Right? That's real justice. Let's find a few more terms. Hegemony. The process by which dominant groups have power to oppress other groups. Not our term, not a biblical term. This is a social justice term. That certain groups, which is essentially white guys, have the power to oppress everybody else. We have another one called white fragility. So if you are a white person and uh, you're defensive regarding any type of talk of social justice, you are fragile. And then we have something called being woke, is that out of your white fragility, if you finally decide to be born again in their terms and now recognize the racial oppression, you are awakened or you're woke. So these are some of the terms that we hear floating out there. Within the social justice movement, we're going to outline four basic components of this. Number one is called critical race theory, which encompasses intersectionality and what they call systemic racism. Number two, we're going to talk about races, what it means biblically. Number three, homosexuality. Number four, transgenderism. Right now you're probably like, wait a minute, Dr. Silvestro, I thought this all about critical race theory. Well, you're right to, to uh, for a little bit, right? You're right to, to the respect that the social justice movement coming into the church is about critical race theory. But what's really taking root is some of these other social issues. And we're going to discuss that here this morning. Okay, quiz time. This is critical race theory. Um, <clears throat> what do you call the one on the left? Brown bear, good. Um, what do you call the one in the middle? African-American bear, yeah. <laughs> Black bear, that's the politically correct term. Black bear, um, what do you call the one on the right? Racist bear. 
I mean, we laugh about this, right? But this is this is how we are viewed in the social justice movement if we are white males or white in general. <clears throat> this modern social justice movement started with what we call critical race theory. And this theory is the idea that somehow racism is built into the fabric of society, which means that every institution that you can name, whether it be healthcare, banking, government, education, list goes on, that there's racism woven into all of it. And that it's based on this idea of, of white privilege. So that means that these institutions that had racism built into it, it was done specifically for the purposes by the white man to oppress the black man. That's the definition of critical race theory and has been the definition. And so what it does then is it marginalizes everyone who isn't isn't white, right? It's the idea that if you aren't white, you're, you've been marginalized in society, and we now need to reverse course. How do they do this? Well, social justice movement today is based on something we call intersectionality. And it's this acknowledgement, so to speak, that there's many disadvantaged groups that exist. And the idea is that for every disadvantaged group you belong to, that there's now an increased oppression that you have suffered in your lifetime. And so basically at the bottom of the totem pole of this oppression is if you were a white European background, male in every way, heterosexual, middle-aged, middle-class, no disability, and the list goes on. But if you're in that group, you're considered bottom of the totem pole. Let's flesh this out a little bit here. So... <clears throat> Who here is a white European, and you raise your hands for this, white European, straight, Christian, biological male, cisgendered, which by the way means that you still acknowledge the gender you were born with, and no disabilities. How many of you fall into that category? Okay, good. So congratulations, you have zero points. You're at the bottom of the barrel. So the point of intersectionality now is that the victim of any one type of discrimination may have a hard time identifying with those with, those with multiple types of oppression. So, so what this means is now, who here is, is non, well, non any one of those things? So when we have these classes, white, European, male, heterosexual, middle-aged, cisgendered, how many of you belong to at least one of those groups? So if you're female, you raise your hands, right? That's one. If you are non-white, keep your hand up. Right, so this is what it is, is the more groups you attach yourself to or can attach yourself to, the more oppressed you theor theoretically are. And now, because you've been more oppressed, because you've been included in more oppressed groups, you now have more voice in society. Remember when Elizabeth Warren, running for president, and she was screaming about being Native American? And a lot of people were kind of confused as to why this was such a big deal. Well, in the eyes of intersectionality, it makes sense. Because if she is a white female who can now identify as being Native American, she gets a second point, and she deserves more voice because she's part of another oppressed group. That's why it was such a big deal to her. But there's some interesting paradoxes with intersectionality because, you know, oppressed groups are willing to work with one another. 
And I find this fascinating. So remember just a few years ago in Florida, it's actually pretty close to one of my friend's church I speak in a couple, couple times a year, there was a homosexual bar that got shot up. Fifty-some homosexuals were, were killed, were murdered in this bar. And for five days, it was kept quiet as to who the person was that shot up the bar. They had him. In, he, was, he was either in custody or, or he killed himself. I can't remember which now. But they knew who it was, and it was hidden. It took five days before it came out when a lesser news source actually put it out there, and then all the big sources were, were forced to. Do you know why? Do you remember who that shooter was? He was a Muslim. Uh-oh. Muslims are part of an oppressed group, apparently. So are homosexuals. And so the media has purposely kept that hidden. Because if it was a white male straight that walked into there, it had been blasted all over the news. But because it was a Muslim, it wasn't. And this is what I find fascinating about this entire topic, is that we see almost every week that goes by in this country, a homosexual is murdered in America by a Muslim. Goes very, it usually doesn't get reported at all or very underreported. Why? Because Muslims have always been considered an oppressed group, at least for many years. So these things get suppressed. We're going to talk more about this in a little bit here. But I find this interesting because within oppressed groups, Muslims and homosexuals should hate one another, right? Homosexuals are doing, I'm sorry, Muslims are doing exactly what they're supposed to do according to their Quran and their teachings. They're supposed to kill homosexuals, stone them. They're supposed to kill really all infidels if they follow the letter of the law, their books. And by the way, infidels are anybody who's not Muslim. They should be doing those things. Homosexuals should hate them, and yet, for the purposes of intersectionality and social justice, they work together. Look at different oppressed groups, and you'll notice this over the last several years. Because the idea of of intersectionality and critical race theory is that there's one oppressor out there. It's the white man. And that Christianity is the white man's religion. And that Christianity is what the oppressor is. So guess what? All of you who have had your hands up at some point today for being female or anything else, guess what? By default, you actually have zero points. And you know why? Because you're Christian. So it doesn't matter how many oppressed groups you actually belong to, the moment that you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you magically go to the bottom of the list. We didn't have time to go through today all the history of the social justice movement. I preached it in, uh, in Portland for a three-hour conference on last Sunday, and I'll be doing it again next Saturday. If you guys want links to the, for that, you can, uh, I can certainly give it to Pastor Aaron. So you guys can read through some of the history or go through what I did on the history of it. And, uh, and you'll see how this has been brewing for really a long time in, this, in our culture, and it's only coming to a head right now. Okay, so there's been this shift in social justice now. So apparently, I, I think you've seen now, it's not just the white man oppressing the black man, right, or black in general. There's been a shift because this thing called critical race theory has actually shifted to what we call critical theory now, where it used to be that white men opposed black individuals. Again, I hate those terms. I'm only using them because they use them. But it's now white men oppressing every other group. That's what we're seeing in churches. That's what we're seeing in society today. And so there's this shift. Critical race theory is really really critical theory now. Marxism has turned into cultural Marxism. 
black liberation theology, which was taught in the seminaries in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, is now just liberation theology. Let's liberate every oppressed group today. So the social justice movement um, wants to, they look at issues that they believe are issues, and they want to attain total equality and equity for all. They want to give everybody what they call a, a level playing field, which really means a level playing field and suppress the white man, right? They want to reverse what they perceive has been going on all these years. <clears throat> what does the Bible teach on this? And so now that we got a, uh, a whirlwind of information about what's been going on in society and in churches for really a long time, how do we look at it from a biblical perspective? Well, number one is that all people are made in the image of God. It doesn't matter how much melanin you have in your skin. You're made in the image of God. Which means that from God's perspective, everybody's equal from that, pers- from, that, from that perspective. There is a difference, though, in Scripture between people. How does God look at people differently? Not by the melanin count of her skin. Not by any of their physical attributes. But he bases it on if you're a child of God or a child of Adam. If you are saved, if you're born again, if you've been adopted into the family of God, he looks at you differently than if you are still in your sin, than if you're still in the family of Adam, if you were not born again, if, if you died today, you'd be in hell for eternity. That's the only way God distinguishes groups of people now. And we see in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, because it does a great job explaining this. Jesus... All of us on the same playing field in the beginning. All of us sinners. All of us born in the family of Adam. Jesus reconciles us to God through the cross for those who repent and believe. Okay, let's move on now. Social justice on systemic racism. The people who teach systemic racism and critical race theory will say that the system has always been rigged by oppressors. That racism always exists and still exists. And they cite experiences by black people being shot by police, black people being less wealthy. I mean, fill in the blank, and they they have all kinds of evidences that they believe are in their favor. And they claim, among other things, that police are two and a half times more likely to shoot a black man over a white man. And so with these social justice adherents um, stressing that racism still exists and always existed, we have two questions to ask. How do we define race as Christians? Well, I think we did that already. And number two, they want to pin sins of racism, right? Sins of people out there in the secular world that are sinning against others on the basis of the shade of their skin. Is this a sin of us as a collective group? Or is it the sin of the individual? Because the social justice movement wants you to believe that this is, if one white person sins, that therefore all of us have sinned in the exact same manner. It sounds ludicrous. It's literally anti-biblical. And we'll talk about that too today. But this is what's being taught in this systemic racism piece. And it goes even further, because it used to be that they said the system is rigged against people of color. And that's what's been taught from before Karl Marx's time, that the system is rigged. Now they've changed their definition a little bit because some of us have pointed out, wait a minute, slavery abolished 150 years ago. Jim Crow laws abolished 70 years ago. 
There's not a law in the books anywhere in America that still suggests racism is still present in the legal system. And yet, they say that we're still systemic racist. So now they've changed our definition slightly. They said, well, maybe it's no longer rigged in that way, but the system is still results in us being the beneficiaries of it all. That we benefit from the system that's been rigged for so long, and it's never going to go away. Okay, biblically, is the system rigged? Well, I would say that there is a system that's rigged, but it's rigged differently. The system that's rigged is the entire fallen creation. The entire world is rigged. Why? Because Adam and Eve chose to eat from a fruit they were commanded not to eat from, told that they were going to die if they ate from it, and guess what they did? They ate. And they died spiritually immediately, and the promise of future physical death was going to come. And in the meantime, sin, death, disease, famine, thorns and thistles, all the bad things we see today entered into the creation as a result of Adam and Eve. We, being born into this fallen creation, and having Adam and Eve as our ancestors way beyond, we have a sin nature because of it. The system is rigged, and it's because of us. That's a biblical way to look at it. All of us are in sin. All of us are in a sinful world. And all of us contribute to the sinful world by continuing to sin. And with that, not only do we all continue to sin, hopefully as, as we get saved we grow in holiness, but that we still all still experience the effects of sin. Right? People still sin against us in a variety of ways throughout life. There is still disease in this world. Every one of us is appointed once to die, all because of the fact of sin into this world. And so when we, when we view this systemic racism now from a man's perspective, let's, let's look at some of their arguments. Because media and sociologists have been telling us these statistics, and, and, and I would say they've been misrepresenting, misrepresenting the statistics to fit the narrative. The media has hid and lied about statistics for years. In some of the cases, George Floyd, Tamir Rice, and Breonna Taylor. We're going to talk about Breonna Taylor here in the time we have today. So here are the facts that are presented by social justice warriors and people pushing the social justice movements. They say that the police were at the wrong house to begin with. They say that the officers used a no-knock warrant to come in, to surprise attack or sneak attack. They say that the officers did not announce themselves. They say that the officers started the firefights. One officer was shot by friendly fire. And then they say the officers shot Briona in her bed. So she was sleeping in the middle of her third dream of the night, and they came and shot her. That's what was told to everybody and the narrative that's been pushed in media for a long time. And obviously, when you read a narrative like this, what does it look like? It looks like you have police brutality, police being oppressors, police purposely targeting black people. What are the true facts of the case? None of them. None of them. The officers were not at the wrong house. They were there where they were supposed to be. They did not use a no-knock warrant. There were eyewitnesses who testified that the officers both knocked and announced that they were coming in. Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, is who shot first. Well, how do they know that? Because all the officers used 40 caliber bullets, 
For those of you who know guns, there's different calibers, different sizes, and Walker used a 9mm. Guess which bullet the officer was hit with? A 9mm, which means it wasn't friendly fire. It was Kenneth Walker shooting at the officers first. And that Taylor was not in bed in her third dream when she got shot. She was actually standing in the hallway right next to her boyfriend as he was shooting the police. These are the true facts. And guess what? These true facts came out. The Kentucky Attorney General, as well as the governor, by the way, Attorney General at the time was black. The police chief was black. Came out and actually corrected the story. And guess who picked it up from the media? Nobody. But you can go read those case files right now on the Internet because it didn't fit the narrative. And I could go on. There's great books. I mean, Vody Bauckham just put out a book, Fault Lines, that goes through some of this stuff. And he just t- hits the tip of the iceberg in these statistics. I went on websites myself to see some of these statistics. Here's the facts. They want you to believe that it's mostly whites killing blacks in crime. The reality, most crime is what we call intra-racial, meaning it's the same race. Again, their terminology, not mine. So it's mostly black-on-black crime or white-on-white crime. Much less is it white-on-black or black-on-white. So almost every, when you, call, when you talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, if they were really concerned about Black Lives Matter, they would look at their own people group, so to speak, and they would say, wait a minute, most of the crimes against black people, most of the shots being taken, most of the murders, is not by white people. It's by their own. In, in fact, if we want to look at the statistics a little further, black against white crime is nine times higher than white against black crime, even though black only represents about 13.5% of the population. Wait a minute. This seems to go completely against the narrative. I see a lot of, like, shocked looks on your faces. You should be, because this is not what we're hearing. And yet you can go on any website today, any crime statistic website, go to Department of Justice, whatever you want, and you'll find the same statistics that I've pulled up and a whole lot more. We've also found in, in statistics that a black officer is more likely to shoot a white suspect as compared to white officers shooting a black suspect. Again, this is what the stats say. This is not me. The media has hidden everything. Okay, so systemic racism. Statistics obviously don't bear this out. We know no laws exist that are racist. And here's the thing I want to make sure we understand fully, is that this is a sin problem. Do some people commit crimes against others based on the shade of their skin out there in the secular world and unfortunately sometimes in the church? Yeah, it happens. But this is a sin problem. The same type of sin is if you lied against, if you lied to somebody, if you stole against somebody, if you did whatever else, fill in the blank, it doesn't matter. That's a sin problem. We have to get back to biblical terminology that it's a sin problem. And so here's the reality in systemic racism is, uh, is that black lives matter, right? And uh, in reality, it's only if killed by a white cop. Right? That's all that ever gets put out there. So social justice on race, many races exist according to them, and it's dependent on skin color. Again, the white race is the main oppressor. I want you to appreciate something here, by the way. As a creationist who actually believes the Bible teaches about creation, earth only being about 6,000 years old, universe, same thing, and that we're all one race coming from Adam and Eve. 
in a biblical worldview, racism cannot possibly exist. Yet, in an evolutionary worldview, which is a secular worldview, it, actually, it absolutely can exist and must necessarily exist. Why? Because if you go through the evolutionary arguments, you have, depending on which book you read, and there's a lot of books from 1940s and 50s that do this, time-life books especially, that talk about the different races that developed from different monkey species. So you had a Caucasoid race, a Negroid race, Mongoloid race, and others. And in the evolutionary world, some species evolve better than others. And guess what all those books said? White race may be evolving better than a few of the other races, different monkey species. This is being taught in books. <clears throat> Even our friend Charles Darwin, we read, we read the cover of his book. You can go online and look at it, and it says, On the Origin of Species. What the media has done for many, many years, and others, is they've covered up what the subtitle is to this book. So let me give it to you for a moment. On the origin of species by means of natural selection, or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. The book that everybody refers to as like the birth of evolution, you really start a little earlier than that, but Charles Darwin... He wrote an entire book that literally points to favored races, going off of this idea of different races of people that have developed from different monkey species over the years, some better than others. I find this unbelievable because it's only in a secular worldview that racism can exist, and it's by their own worldview that they say it must. It's puzzling. Again, what does the Bible say? Well, one blood, one race. Right? Genesis 3.20, that, that Eve was named Eve because she's the mother of all the living. We see that there's, even though there's one race, many nations exist. Right? We see the Tower of Babel and people being spread from the Tower of Babel. This is where we got the birth of nations, languages, and false religions. And we also see Acts 17.26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So, one race, but there are many nations. And Ephesians 2 again talks about this. Evolution is what leads to racism, not a biblical worldview. Now, I must give a disclaimer. There is one place we see in the Bible where the word race is used. But here's the context. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are either the race of God or the race of Adam. It's the only time we see race in the Bible. You are either born again or you're not. Okay, social justice on LBTQ movement. People often ask me, Wow, is the social justice movement going to take down the church? Is critical race theory going to be the one that takes it out? I say, nope, I don't think so. I mean, it's a big boon to us right now. It's a big problem. And there's no doubt it's tearing apart churches. But I actually don't think that it's critical race theory that's going to take us down. I think enough people have woken up to this fact. Not only Christians, but, but even secular people are starting to see the dangers of this ideology. Where I think our biggest problem is is what's attached itself to the social justice movement, which is the LGBTQ movement. 
And, and so what's fascinating about social justice movement is that you have all these different social movements that have attached themselves and stuck themselves to it and have entered in through the back door. This being, I think, the biggest one. Because once hate speech laws come into play, I hope you guys got some other people lined up after Pastor Aaron because he'll be in jail. And the next man up is going to have to be preaching next. And that's what's going to be happening in churches as time goes on. So in the social justice movement on this subject, white men not only oppress black people, but they oppress homosexuals, transsexuals, bisexuals, queer, and the list goes on. And so what they want to see is total equality in society. But not just total equality, right? The homosexual movement started as, hey, we just want to come out of the closet. You don't have to like it. Just, just let us be. Let us live our lives. We'll stay out of your faces type of deal. That's not what they really wanted, right? They, they wanted to, to push it onto society so much so that they wanted us to not only normalize homosexuality, but they want us to celebrate homosexuality. They want us to champion homosexuality like it's something that's normal. And they were very clever in how they did this, right? I mean, you go back to shows like Will and Grace that introduced a homosexual character. What was he? Comedian, right? He's a funny guy. It was a way to introduce homosexuality to people and, and make it seem to be a little bit more normal. A lot of shows did this in order to start to change the thought process of, of, nat- of normal Americans, right? Because you don't have to be Christian to know that this is not only a wicked sin, but it is not normal. And yet this is how they got it into society. They not only want that, they want their own marriage rights, right? At first they said, Hope Church, don't worry, we're not coming after you. We just, we just want to be able to love who we want to love, and we want to be able to have the same rights for health care and things like that, and, and retirement plans and whatnot. Right? That's how it started, and now, now they want churches to ordain their sinful, can't even call marriages, but their unions. And then they want this idea of gender fluidity, right? That, that we can pretend to be whatever gender we want to be and whatever we want to be, and you must, you must obey whatever pronoun I want to be called whenever I want to be called it. So what does the Bible say on this? Let's be clear. The Bible calls homosexuality a sin. Calls it an abominable sin in, in Leviticus. In Romans 1, it says it's contrary to nature. Contrary to nature, right? They, we know, at the base of it, it's not normal. Scripture is very clear at defining this. And Scripture also says that marriage is between one man and one woman. We, we understand that from the beginning of Genesis. We also understand that in Matthew 19, when Jesus was asked about divorce and remarriage, where he said, directly from Genesis 1 and 1-2, he quoted from, to define marriage yet again to everybody. But when we talk about homosexuality... The best verse I use, especially when I'm homosexual parades or just talking to people in general, is this. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now here's a long laundry list of sins that not one of us can escape. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Every one of us fits in this category in some way with our sin. But the verse doesn't end there, right? The passage doesn't end there. It goes on to say, and such were some of you. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And the people that he's writing to, some of which were revilers, some were sexually immoral, some were homosexual. But yet, he said, you were washed, 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You're washed of that sin. So despite what the Sam Elberries want to say of this world and the people that support him, there is no such thing as a homosexual Christian. Why? Because you're washed from the sin. Yeah, you might still have some of these sinful desires, but you don't identify with it, right? I don't identify myself as a lying Christian because I used to tell a lot of lies in my unsaved youth or a blaspheming Christian because I use the Lord's name in vain. Or I, don't, I don't call myself these things. Why? Because I'm washed of that. My sins have been separated from the east as far as from the west. I'm no longer identified by sin. And yet the church wants to say, ah, oh, homosexual Christians, it's okay. You know what? I mean, you can cuddle with another male, just, just you can't do anything you know, else besides. What? Are you kidding me? But it's the normalizing of homosexuality into the church. What's the, what does the Bible say in transgenders? Well, we saw in the Olympics this year that uh, the first male pretending to be a female decided to enter the women's competition. And, and I think this was all set up, by the way, because they, I think they purposely picked somebody who couldn't win the competition to start to normalize this idea. Right? Because if a male dressing as a female, walked in and, and slaughtered everybody in this competition in the Olympics, people would have woken up to it, right? So I think this was just a, a way of kind of starting to normalize the process of getting this stuff happening. What does the Bible say on transgenderism, transgenders? Let's be clear. In your bio, in, in, when, you, when you're born and you have certain body parts, you're either male or female. And... And as a result of that, you have a gender that is assigned to that. And guess what? They're inseparable. Your sex, biological sex and your gender cannot be separated. And that you're XX or XY from conception. So quick biology lesson. Male and female come together. You have an egg from a female that's always an X chromosome. You have a male who has sperm that's either X or Y chromosome. And that sperm hits the egg. If the sperm is X and the egg's always X, they come together. You've got two X's. That defines a female. That cell now starts to multiply and multiply and multiply until we get to an adult where we are somewhere around 60 trillion cells. About half of which are red blood cells. They don't carry XY or XX chromosomes. And some of which are, are sexual gametes, so they don't carry both either. But the rest of our cells are either XX or XY from birth. Which means that me, XY from the beginning, XY now, my entire body, it doesn't matter what parts I cut off, what parts I slaughter, what I want to dress like, I'm still a male, my entire body screams male. And if you're female, it's the reverse. You can't change that. Despite how much lipstick you put on a pig, you can't change the pig. If you're a male and you put on a dress, you're still a male. Bottom line. I know it sounds harsh, but we have to be, we have to be real here. And so, so that means that um, people like Bruce Jenner... And I really, I really hate saying this, Dr. Levine, are men. I know, hard to believe, right, when you look at those pictures. I mean, Dr. Dr. Levine, this is a trained medical doctor. Went to school for a long time to be a medical doctor. Practiced for years as a medical doctor. Was the 
Health Secretary of Pennsylvania is now the Assistant Health Secretary under Joe Biden. I don't know about you, but I don't trust a medical doctor who can't figure out what you are when you look in the mirror after you come out of the shower. This is unbelievable. So we look at this thing called gender roles now. Egalitarian versus complementarian. This is a big issue in the church today where we're, okay, look, men and women, we're created equal in the eyes of God, right? We are, we are all made in the image of God. However, based on if you were born female or male, you have different roles. Males, you have the right to be a pastor. Females, you do not. I'm sorry. Like, this isn't my words. It's what God said. So there are, there are roles that are based upon your biological sex and gender. Now, I do want to say this, too. Some people will ask me, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Dr. Sylvester. I mean, there, there are people who are born with both parts, or, or there's people who are born like Klein-Feltel syndrome, XXY, or XYY, or XXX, like triple X syndrome. And what about those people? Well, they're less than 1% of the population. Oh, and by the way, in God's original creation, there were only males and females. It's a result of the fall, genetic mutations, i.e. mistakes, that have caused some people to be born with extra chromosomes. That doesn't make it, that's not the normal thing. So we can't, the argument for transgenders is they want to point to, they want to point to the triple X syndrome person and say, well, look, well, obviously gender can't be the same as biological sex. And I say, wait a minute, you know that's a mistake. That's mutation. That has nothing to do with God's original design for males and females. Other social justice issues have been attached to this, as I said earlier. Veganism has become a social justice issue. Global warming and climate change become a social justice issue. Eradicating guns. This term science, which I could do an entire sermon on just science alone, being propped up as the next god of the universe, has become an issue, right? How many of us have heard, it's all about the science for the last year and a half? As a dentist, I can tell you, none of it has been about the science. None of it. It's literally been the opposite of science for the last year and a half. As a dentist who understands masks, who are trained on masks, who have known for the last 40 years of mask research, masks don't work. Every doctor has been trained this way. Every dentist has been trained this way. Every surgeon has been trained this way. And yet, we have guys prancing in front of cameras saying, masks work, wear your masks, social distance. It's against everything we have ever been taught in the medical literature. Not to mention all the other junk science is being promoted as science. And in the name of science, you must submit because they define science now rather than what actual scientific experiments do. And so all this now turns into what I call the new religion. Vodibakum outlines in this book very well. Um, what do false religions typically do? They like to borrow from the familiar and redefine, right? We talk to our friendly Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Catholics, and they like to use the same terms that we do and redefine them to trick us. And so this CRT is nothing different. It's also a new religion. We call it the cult of anti-racism. They have a new cosmology, new origin of the universe. Um, their critical race theory, CRT intersectionality, is this new origin. And humanism is God. The idea of human thought, human intervention, is God, not, not God of the Bible. And so critical racism, racism theory is a better way to call it. Been a tro they've been a Trojan horse to come into the church and to take in all of this 
man's philosophy, anti-biblical stuff into our churches and redefining terms. The original sin is not Adam and Eve eating from the fruit. The original sin is, is racism by the CRT folks. That the law is not the Ten Commandments in law. It's, it's, it's the law of anti-racism, however they define it. The gospel is not the gospel, right? The gospel isn't that all of us are sinners, all of us sin, all of us deserve God's wrath, and that his justice must be served, and it was served through his son's death, burial, and resurrection for those who repent and believe. They changed that gospel to now it's about racial reconciliation. They have their own martyrs like Trayvon and Breonna Taylor. They have their own priest, which intersectionality, right? The more oppressed you are, the more voice you have, they're essentially our priests today. They tell us how it goes. There's an atonement. The atonement isn't Christ's death on the cross, but the atonement is modeled after Rauschenbusch from 1917, who wrote a theology for the social gospel that, that you, must, you must do things like, like Jesus didn't die on the cross for sin. He died on the cross for the six social sins or six social ills. And that part of the atonement is reparations, that we must pay for the fact that racism has occurred. We have the new birth. It's not being born again in Christ. It's not being born again with the Holy Spirit entering into you. The rebirth is being woke to the idea of racism. And that there's a new canon, which is the social sciences and experiences. And that salvation, there is none. You can never get out of the fact that you are white you're a racist, you've benefited from the system, there's no way out. You're either a racist and you admit it, and you'll forever pay reparations, or you, are, you don't admit you're a racist, and you're even worse because you're a racist who won't admit it. There's no win. There's no end game. And so original sin racism, what does the Bible say? We're all creating, we're all creating the image of God, all humans have original sin due to Adam. All of us are appointed once to die and then judgment, according to Hebrews 9.27. And here's the key. Because we are sinners, and we are going to face God on judgment day, every one of us individually is going to face God, who do we have to give an accounting for for our sins? Ourselves. I'm not going to give an accounting for my wife's sins, my son's sins, my neighbor's sins, or people who have the same shade of skin as I do. I'm going to give an accounting for my sins, exactly what Ezekiel 18.20 would say, as well as other passages in the Bible. So the real new birth, repent and put your trust in Christ. This should be our message of reconciliation to the world. When people cry racism and anti-racism and they cry out reparations, we have to say, no, it's sin. And the way we get rid of whatever you perceive to be racism, whatever you perceive to be social justice issues, the way we get rid of it is by us proclaiming the gospel. And us proclaiming the gospel so that hearts are changed and people sin less because they're growing in holiness in Christ. That's how you change culture, is through the gospel. The only means necessary by which you can change culture. They want to talk about atonement, that there's income and wealth inequality. They have mistaken premises in this. They, they say that the rich have become wealthy by exploiting the poor. This is a big Karl Marx idea. And so they want to... Have a, they want to have a solution of redistributing people's wealth. And so in this system, the atonement never ends. And part of this is the reparations for slavery. So they, they say that we, as white folk, even though people like my family came to America in the 1960s and 1940s, mom and dad's side, 
from Italy, I'm somehow responsible for past generations of slavery. And that I must pay reparations based on what my white folks apparently did back in the past, even though it really wasn't even my white folks or all the folks. And so we look at Zacchaeus, Luke 19, verses 8 through 10, because social justice warriors say, look, Zacchaeus went and he paid back people in, in his repentance. Well, what happened in Zacchaeus's time? Zacchaeus got saved. He personally paid back those he personally defrauded. So Zacchaeus personally stole from people. When he got saved, as an act of repentance, he decided to pay back those that he personally defrauded. He did the sin, he paid back those he personally defrauded. Did Jesus tell him, you must go do this in order to repent? Must you do this in order to be saved? No. He said, you're saved. Zacchaeus did this out of the goodness of his heart. He did so as a result of his heart change, recognizing who he personally defrauded. He didn't pay back other generations. He paid back those he personally defrauded. What does the Bible say on wealth inequality? Well, we look at the parable of the talents, Matthew 25. It says each servant received a different amount, right? And that those servants got different returns. Two of them invested the money. The other one buried it. And that faithfulness was seen in the first two people. Why? Because of what they had done. They invested what God gave them. We look at this parable all the time and we pull these meanings out of the parable. And those are great. Those are great meanings out of the parable. But if we thought about why God gave different amounts to each one of the three to begin with, God personally had biblical inequality or wealth inequality. He personally did it. Why? Well, God is sovereign. He gives to whom what he wills to whom he wills. It's nothing to do with society. This is to do with the sovereign God. And that whatever he gave you, more or less, you're responsible for that, and you're given accounting for that. So but the biblical answer, wealth inequality and wealth redistribution only steals from those who have more gifts as those who have less, going against what God has commanded in his sovereignty. And that, look, are we to give out of the goodness of our hearts? If we have more, should we give to those less needy? Absolutely. But we can't be mandated by social justice warriors or the government. It has to be out of the goodness of our hearts, is what Bible commands for us. So don't be confused. The top, that's sharing. The bottom, that's theft. When they make you do it. Critical race theory gospel. We have the ultimate responsibility to do everything we can to make the world a, per a perfectly equal and equitable place. Right? This is what the CRT guys say. And yet the Bible says... The gospel is we're all sinners and that we owe God just punishment for our sin. Repent and believe the gospel. So Christian, look, there's two worldviews, God and not God. There's only two, right? God and not God. There's not a Catholic one, word of faith one, social justice, critical race theory, critical theory. It's God and not God. All those things fall in the not God category. So we look at Bible verses like Isaiah 117. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. This is a verse that's often thrown up at us regarding social justice. And yet we know now that social justice is not biblical justice. This is talking about biblical justice against sin. Same thing with Zechariah 7.9. 
See the word justice. It's about biblical justice against sin. Revelation 7-9, they try to trick us on this one. It says this, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, I'm sorry, from every race, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They pull a fast one on us because they put this word race in here. That's not what the verse actually says. The word is nation. They quote Revelation 7-9 all the time and just switch out that word. For those who aren't keen on it. Same thing with Psalm 82.3. The word justice is biblical justice, not social justice. Micah 6.8, as Pastor talked about. Biblical justice, not social justice. They have this 689 project that they claim is, is that race, America had a racist beginning and that the, dec, that the Revolutionary War wasn't about, coming, wasn't about um, separating from England. It was about, it was about slavery Complete fraud, this type of stuff. I don't have time to get into it all, but this new project that they are talking about in history class, and if your kids go to public school, I'd encourage you to take them out, homeschool. But this is being taught now. It's a complete fraud. And so what are, what are our thoughts now? What do we have to do in our last couple of minutes here? We recognize some people are more fortunate in life than others. Again, we've looked at the parable of the talents. But it's not due to societal oppression or wealthy exploiting the poor. It's due to the fall and the sovereignty of God. And that we can only repent for sins we personally commit. We can't repent for somebody else's sins. They want to say this idea of generational sin, right? That, that we are responsible for the generations of our forefathers. And they try to quote Bible verses for this. And, you know, that's not what the Bible says. Generational sin is this. Grandfathers who commit a sin have a tendency for that sin to be passed down to the next generation who are committing the sin themselves, and so on and so forth. And it takes a generation to stop doing the sin of their forefathers. And in, those, in the same context, in that generational sin, it still says that everybody is responsible for their own sin. You're not responsible for the sin of your fathers and grandfathers. Man-centered approach is that the oppressed or the judge and get justice. Government is savior. Bible approach is that Jesus is the righteous judge. He will ultimately ex execute perfect justice against all sin. And that it's not the social justice warriors that are savior. It's not the government that's savior. It's Christ. Our solution isn't defunding police. It's not destruction of cities. Our solution could be, let's stop fatherlessness. Let's stop the social justice movement that is encouraging the breakdown of the nuclear family. Because here's the reality, 70% of black children are born to unwed mothers. 80% of black children go most of their lives without a father figure in the home for a significant part of their childhood. This results in five times more poverty, nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 more times likely to land in prison. Because the real problem today is sin. That's the real problem. And the only way we fix this is for us to go out in the world and preach the gospel. We did a conference yesterday on evangelism. I pray that your church starts evangelizing because every single one of you is responsible. Pastor Aaron last week did a sermon in, in lieu of this weekend, or, or, or in, in preparation for this weekend. It's not, it's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. And every one of you are responsible for it. You're in sin when you're not evangelizing. Let's be honest. And so if we're going to battle sin in this world, including the social justice movement, 
It's going to be through your evangelistic efforts. It's going to be for you calling out sin for what it is and presenting the only solution for sin, which is the gospel and Jesus Christ. Lord, I just thank you for gathering us together today. And what a hard and weighty topic for us to cover. And Lord, I just pray that, that this message penetrates all of our hearts deeply. And most importantly, Lord, is that, is that social justice is just another one of the long line of sins and problems that have entered into the church. And that, and that you impress upon us the only solution in this fallen world, the only solution, is the gospel of grace. It's the gospel that we go out and proclaim that, that everyone is a sinner. Everyone's lied. Everyone's stolen. Everyone's lusted, which is committing adultery in the heart. Everyone has, has blasphemed God at some point or another in their, in their lives. And yet, through God's grace and mercy, Jesus Christ came down, fully God, taking on flesh to also become fully man, living the perfect life that we're not capable of, going to the cross to die, not for his own sin, but for the sins of people who'd repent and believe, that, but for those who'd repent and believe that his death, burial, and resurrection pay the penalty in full for sin. And that as a result of that, we see changed hearts. As a result of that, we see the Holy Spirit enter in to the new believer to change the heart and to change the mind and to bring people back to biblical truth. That's how we change a culture. So, Lord, I just pray that you, you really impress us upon us and to go out and be the warriors that we are called to be as Christians and as ambassadors of Christ. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You're welcome. Okay, I am not going to preach, um, but I, I want to just take a second just to make it crystal clear um, why I had Anthony here, because that was that was a uh, he just unleashed a fire hose on on us, um, and I know he uh, I, I think he alluded to the fact that he he did that in a three hour session and he turned he cut it down into an hour maximum hour two hour three, hey, you know I I want to make it crystal clear why I had him stand in this pulpit. Uh, I want to say something about qualification and something about about mission or, or goal. Most of us are white, or white, or or a whitish shade of brown, and because we are in that, uh, uh, we have that classification as white, cis, uh, and predominantly Christian. Because we are a Christian, many people out there are going to say we have no right to open our mouths. And so not only did Anthony do a good job of, of demonstrating that the argumentation behind why they think we have no right to speak is, is invalid, I want to appeal to you to remember what we talked about last week. The king tells us to go and, and speak on his behalf. And so it doesn't matter whether what, what color you are, by virtue of being a Christian and belonging to the king, you have every right to knock on someone's door or to ask them if they have a minute to talk about the Lord or to share the gospel with them. You are not disqualified from sharing the gospel with someone because of the color of your skin or the religion that your family uh, has traditionally belonged to or whatever your heritage is. You are qualified to speak. 
And the other thing is, uh, is goal or commission. Um, why do we, what, what are we hoping to accomplish? Well, Anthony's last 10 minutes, did you notice how quickly he was going through the slides? He knew he was running out of time. But there was a gold mine of information in assertions and stats. And uh, um, I, I also recommend Vody Bauckham's book, Fault Lines. There's a lot of very pertinent information. Um, but um, particularly that, uh, when you defined the goal of the social, go of the social justice movement, the goal is to bring, uh, is, is that men and government might bring about justice and equity. That's something that the Lord Jesus Christ alone can do. No government is going to bring about a utopia or heaven because no government can. That is not something any men or any coalition can do because of the underlying problem that if there's sin in, in, in the equation, uh, it's not going to happen. We go and we, t we, we, we teach, the, we, we present the gospel so as to make disciples of the one who is going to usher in perfect justice and equity. That's what we hope to do. So thank you for letting me preach.